I'm Lara Barrera, and welcome to the 19th episode of our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Managing Micronutrients with Tissue Testing and Fertilizer, is being brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering complete dry and liquid fertilizer systems, Montag will help you reap the benefits of deep banding fertilizer, which can reduce your rates, increase your yields, and assist your stewardship goals. They also offer high-capacity auto-steer carts that help keep soil compaction under control by precisely following in the tracks of any implement. To learn more about their fertilizer solutions, visit www.montagmfg.com or call them today at 712-852-4572. Do you know if your crops are getting the micronutrients they need? If not, your yields may be taking a hit. In this presentation from the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference, Ray Ward, founder and president of Ward Laboratories in Kearney, Nebraska, will share how to tell whether your crop is suffering a nutrient deficiency, where your nutrient levels should be, and what your options are for providing those nutrients to the plant. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing, we welcome Ray Ward to share his knowledge on micronutrients and what no-tillers can do to ensure their crops have the fertility they need. There's a few things here. Uh, my grandson uh, just got a PhD at UNL, University of Nebraska-Lincoln in August, and he's kind of running the company now. And, and so I can do more of these kind of things, and I'm going to stay around. I hope I hope I can make another 10 years of mentoring him to be able to answer farmer questions. You know, the, the toughest part of getting a degree is learning how to answer questions. You can, you can repeat what's in the book, but the books aren't necessarily right. And we've learned a lot of things over time that uh, I, can, I can talk about, and I hope I can teach him. And then Lance, if you heard Lance last night, Gunderson, He's working on his PhD in soil microbiology at, at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So we have that team, and I told Nick that as we get busier, he might have to hire another PhD just to, to take care of all that, because we review every analysis, and we're running 4,000 soil samples a day in uh, November and early December. And we run uh, about 370, 370,000 samples for the year in our laboratory in Kearney. The other interesting thing about laboratory work is I've, I've, I do water testing, and in Nebraska we have a light, lot of nitrate in groundwater from over-irrigation of nitrogen, and, and uh, they've got a lot of regulations now farmers have to follow, and taking three-foot soil samples, taking water samples, and making the nitrogen recommendations for their crops based on the nitrate in the soil, nitrate in the water, and, a, and kind of a realistic yield goal. and, and uh, just, just really uh, 
trying to get the farmers to utilize some of these things better, and they got these young people trying to, trying to do these things. And so this is my grandson's PowerPoint slides here to begin with. It's, I gotta click this thing so many times to, to get to say things, but it's a monitoring tool to make decisions, identify nutrient deficiencies. And I think you probably understand these things, determine nutrient supply and capacity of soil. You put fertilizer on, did the plants get it? You know, the, that kind of thing. And then uh, determine the effects of fertilizer application. In uh, study the relationship between fertility and crop plant performance. And there's some things on plant analysis that I see some people get from some companies that are trying to sell products in, instead of trying to help farmers with uh, trying to make, a, make some money uh, on things. So I, I'm a little bit leery of some of these things. Analyze whole, analyze whole or specific plant parts. What sample depends on the crop type stage, and so we're going to go through those things. Here's, this is Nick when he was a lot younger, uh, taking a soil sample. V, VE, or emergence to V4, we'd like to get the whole plant, whole corn plant. Cut it off about an inch above the soil. And when I say cut it off, that means with a sharp knife, because they get too many samples in that they got roots hanging on them with dirt on them. And, and uh, we normally don't wash the samples. Uh, the gals that log the samples in, put the numbers on, and they go to the dryer. And, and so if you've got soil there, contamination, you might be getting some erroneous reading. So, so please try to take a good sample by cutting off an inch above the soil surface uh, and, and don't have any roots hanging on there. Now, at the, at the V5 to V16, then we take the top leaf with a collar on it. And there's a farmer sitting in the crowd here that I told him that and he couldn't understand that. And so I said, just cut the whole damn plant off and send it and I'll take the leaf. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it's pretty simple. What, what the top leaf with the collar. The collar is that little uh, ring around the, 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 the stalk where the leaf blade connects to the leaf sheath. You can see that and up, in, up above that is in the whorl and you can't see that collar so you don't you take that top leaf and you just grab that and pull that off with your just snap it with your wrist and and take 15 leaves on the corn to take take a, a sample that you put into a paper bag for sending to a laboratory whatever laboratory you send it to but but don't put it in plastic it start to make silage right away and mold and all kinds of stuff so use a paper bag and they'll respiration goes on and, and it keeps it in good, good condition. At V17 R1, we, there's the ear shoot is coming out. You can see the ear shoot coming out then, or else it's at silking time and you can see it easy, but that top ear shoot, then just snap that leaf at that, where that top ear shoot is from 15, from 15 plants. And when you do that, go across the rows. Don't go down one row, but go across the rows. Make sure you get kind of a random sample. Uh, I say go across the rows because if your fertilizer strips or whatever it might be, it'd be better to get, instead of going down one row, they got a certain kind of fertilizer rate that was a mistake. So do that and then R, R2 to R6, the guys say I'm on the NRCS uh, uh, CSP program and I got to take leaf samples and I forgot about it and what, the, what leaf do I take and the corn's uh, about ready to harvest. And, and please uh, understand if you're in that program, you, you know people in the program, to tell them to make sure they get their samples by, by uh, uh, pollination time. And, and if, uh, 
If you don't, uh, I, the new plant analysis handbook, uh, number four, is out, and they do have some interpretation for after pollination, but uh, I don't have those in my, in my computer program yet, so we can do some of that. On the soybeans, uh, emergence uh, pre-bloom the whole plant, and cut the, again, cut that off an inch above the soil surface, and, and take the sample. And then at the, the bloom to R3, and the bloom stage starts about V5, V5 or V6, and then you, you, you walk into the field, and the top, the big, the big trifoliates at the top of the canopy, those are the most recently matured leaves or trifoliates, and you just grab those three trifoliates and pull those off. Don't snap them because that takes a petiole, and we just want the leaves on that. So, so in the soybeans, you just pull those three leaves from 15 plants. So you'd have 45 leaves in your sample for doing that. And then after R3, uh, not recommend taking samples. Uh, wheat, we prefer the whole plant until heading. And then if you're taking a, leaf, a flagged leaf sample at, uh, at uh, heading time, it's 100 flagged leaves you need to get a good representative, enough sample so we can analyze it. And by the time you pull 100 flagged leaves, you'll quit. You know, it's just unless you're really determined. And then after heading, not, not recommended to get the plant sample. So, so what you want to do is get the plant sample. Remember this morning I showed those slides, how the plant nutrients, how they are taken up by pollination time. And, and then if you remember, those things, those, the leaves and the stalk and the sheaths and all started curving down and, and that nutrients went into the grain on the corn. And so, so those analysis on the leaves go down after pollination time as it starts to form in the grain, and we don't have good interpretation once, once a reproduction starts in that way. So that's why we like to have them earlier. Now, on, on the laboratory, what, what we try to do on the, on the plant analysis is run the samples a day after we get them in. So if you're, if you're in a, needing something, and we know that sometimes you've got to treat fast, especially in some of the high-quality crops, uh, then, then uh, we try to get that. If we get the sample in, get the analysis done the next, next day, and by sometime that evening, we hope we have that email to back out to you for analysis so you can start making decisions on how to treat that. This is just an example. And I was visiting somebody over here uh, a while ago. Uh, this is from our farm in southeast Nebraska, and, and, and it shows this 10 to 14 leaf stage over here and then I got nitrogen just right on the break at 3% three, 3 nitrogen. I got phosphorus really good, potassium good, sulfur's good. And then magnesium, I'm just pretty darn low. And I thought, I took that sample and, uh, and I was getting ready to give a talk in the wintertime. And go, why is that magnesium so low? And then I remembered this field had low potassium, I had a potassium test. There was 78 on the part per million, which you know I'd like to have it at 200, and uh, so I had them put 100 or 100 pounds at 0060 on. Now you put potassium on, you decrease magnesium uptake, and it's just one of those things that you see, and that magnesium is real low. Now I didn't, I didn't go buy any magnesium to put on. I, on the corn, I've had guys try magnesium, and there's one. Fertilizer guy, uh, he was putting a, a slurry K-mag through a pivot. He could, we almost doubled his magnesium content and he told me that it didn't help the yield at all. And so I haven't worried too much about it, but a farmer down in Oklahoma sent me wheat samples, 
few years ago and the magnesium was low. And I said, uh, try two to four pounds of Epsom salts as a foliar treatment. And of course, I never heard from him. I said that because I didn't want to have to answer his question on the phone, what I would do about this. And, and uh, I saw him a year later. I said, what did you do? He said, well, I went to the Freed dealer and I bought me a pallet of Epsom salts and I sprayed every acre of wheat. I said to try it, and he did that kind of thing. And you know how farmers are. If you get convinced you're losing money, you're going to do everything. You don't even leave a check strip because you don't want to lose any money. And so it's hard to, hard to get it. But he had a few skips, and, and he said three days later he could see the wheat green up. And he grew as, like he had one field that made 100 bushel. And he, did, he could compare across the road to his neighbors, but it was just one of those things that Maybe on the wheat, it might work. On the, on the corn, I haven't had too much success from what growers have said, so kind of kind of keep that in mind. And we've, we've run uh, plant samples from across the, the corn belt this year, and uh, there's some areas where the magnesium content is pretty darn high in the corn, and other areas where it's lower. And when I, when I looked at the magnesium as high, because I hadn't seen it that high, looked over the potassium and it was lower. And the guy that had the lower magnesium, his potassium tests are higher. So, the, so those two are really related. And I can't tell you the magic of what's going on, but it's one of those things to observe and kind of pay attention to uh, uh, in, the, in the plant analysis. Here's another test that I took at tassel time and all my nutrients are. And that's kind of our interpretation of uh, what I've learned over, over time and, and with the plant analysis book that J.B. Jones and some other guys have written and you know, they're into their fourth, uh, fourth uh, uh, revision now. So they got a lot of data and lots of different fruit trees and all kinds of vegetables and stuff. So we can do those. Uh, the plant analysis, uh, well, I th we repeated that stuff right. Here's kind of the deficiency symptoms. And I think you probably know these on nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, uh, the blue-green color, and, and I told you guys this morning I'm red-green color blind, so don't talk to me about what color the plants are. Let me see them. I can tell what's wrong with it by, and my wife gets mad at me driving down the road 50 mile an hour, and I can see zinc deficiencies and those kind of. Do you ever do that to you guys? You know, and then she gets mad when I stop to look. But uh, the blue-green color and phosphorus, if your if your corn looks good or your crop looks good and it just isn't growing as fast as you think it is. It's probably phosphorus. You can see the purple color sometimes in that, but, but slow growth is more phosphorus. And, and phosphorus is in ATP, you know, anosine triphosphate. That's the energy compound. And uh, when, you, when you get scared and, and, and some people like that, adrenaline flow and that kind of things, that's ATP. You know how I found out about that? I took a, a biochemistry class from a PhD and we had to go over to this little building. There's one in there and it smelled terrible. There's rats running all over. And we had to grab a rat. We had a gallon jar and we had to grab a rat and throw it in the jar and put the lid on because it's full of ether and then it died. Then we took it back to the lab and we had to cut it open, take the liver out, grind it up to measure the, the phosphorus in that for ATP. This is the, the ATP is the energy stored in your liver. And we did that, and you know what my conclusion was? I'm glad I'm a soil scientist. <laughs> I'm not much of an animal person, but, but uh, so, that, so the phosphorus is involved in growth. 
in, in cell division, acquiring the energy. The, the energy for breaking down the photosynthates and respiration, that's all ATP energy that's going on there. And potassium, light green color, and spindly growth, and then you have firing on the lower leaves, and potassium, or nitrogen's the lower leaves. The pioneer, the pioneer's purple, and every other hybrid is not purple in the early stage, and that's Pioneer's trademark, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the, the corn breeders, when I was at South Dakota State, they had markers in their fields, and they were purple corn plants, and it's called anthocyanin, and, and there's, uh, there's some corn varieties, if you can call them that. There's corn plants that are purple. It's that got that purple color, and I think that's in that breeding that occurs early in the season. So uh, the, it's a, the purple color is anthocyanin. And then you see corn stalks sometimes in the fall that are really red. You can drive down the road and see these red corn stalks. You know what? There's no ear on that stalk. And it's storing the sugars as anthocyanin sugars in the stalk, making the stalks purple. You, you, can see, you, can, you can evaluate some things just by knowing some of these kind of things. Uh, magnesium, all the leaves turn yellow at the edge, similar to potassium. It's on the, on the ed edges of the leaves at the bottom. The nitrogen's a V yellow that goes down the middle, uh, goes down the midrib, and potassium and magnesium is on the outside edge. The sulfur deficiency, light green, and that's at the top of the plant. Sulfur doesn't move in the plant very well. So, so when you look across the field and you see it's light green, that's probably an indication that it's sulfur deficiency. You drive down the road and you see these hillsides that are yellower or lighter green than the rest of the field, that's a sulfur deficiency, and they're pretty easy to spot uh, kind of thing. Copper, uh, leaves are dark green, plant is stunted. Copper is immobile, and so it really affects the top of the growth of the plant. Haven't seen it so uh, in the practical terms, but that would be a description. Uh, yeah, iron. Yellowing occurs between the veins of young leaves. Manganese, yellowing pattern, but it's not as distinct as iron. It's kind of a blotchy appearance of manganese. You'll have these stripes going up the leaf, but they won't be continuous stripe. It'll be kind of blotchy type appearance. And the zinc, uh, shortened internodes, the, tel the plant telescopes in, so to speak. They'll be shorter. And then the yellowing in the, in the mid leaves, and it goes across the veins. And we'll show you some of these pictures here. Uh, boron, terminal buds die, lower leaves misshapen, and shorten the internodes. The boron is, is uh, the ion that's used to transport stuff to the seeds. And so in alfalfa seed production, the guys make sure they got boron on. And, and uh, some people blame that the tip of the ears don't fill out because you got a lack of boron. You know, and, and it, well, I hear about the tipping back on the ears every summer. You got this corn and it's, you pull the shacks back and it's kind of in the roasting area or early milk stage and you got these tips and in 1967 I had four grad students South Dakota State come into my office and said we have solved the tipping back on the corn and I'd say that because partly because it's been a problem for years and, and they are such smart grad students I said How did, what is the problem they said the cob is too long Just in case anybody ever asks, you can use that. Now, if, if you're not, if you, if you got, you know, 40, 40, 44 kernels per row and that kind of thing, you're probably okay, even though there's some tipping back there. And so my tenant, we got 32 acres where we live in Kearney, and, and it's irrigated for irrigated 
And one day I saw him on the driveway and I said, what's the corn look like? He said, I took your advice. And I said, what did I tell you? He said, you said, don't look. <laughs> so, I, so I told him, don't look at it when it's growing. Wait until it's uh, more mature and then things look better. Uh, chloride, uh, welding, and reduced leaf growth. Molybdenum appears as nitrogen deficiency, stunted growth, and chlorosis. And this is one that you need to watch for soybeans. It's, it's very important in the nitrate reductase and in the rhizobia fixed in nitrogen. And so if, you're, if your soybeans are nodulated but they look kind of nitrogen deficient, maybe they are if you analyze it, you have a, a molybdenum problem. Molybdenum's a deficiency on acid soils. It's more available in, in alkaline soils. And we, we run molybdenum on feed samples because of the molybdenum in high pH soils, molybdenum gets high in a plant. And when you're feeding the forage to animals, it ties up copper. If you've got too much molybdenum, you get a copper deficiency animal. And so the feed guys have looked at molybdenum as, a, as knowing how much copper to put in their supplement for their livestock. And so the so crop consultant in Kansas said, can you run molybdenum on plants? I said, yeah. But you know, I thought, why in the hell do you want to do that? And, so we run these and there's no molybdenum in them. And then he sprayed some molybdenum solution on the, and got a four or five bushel response to soybeans. And then a the guy in South Dakota did that and got eight bushel response on molybdenum. So, so it's one of those I think that, that we need to watch more than we do. So here is uh, kind of some levels that we look at. And I put these in here because I want you to understand that as the plants grow and you get more, more uh, cellulose and more stock and all that stuff, that dilutes than minerals. The mineral content can't stay the same as a plant grows for some of these. And so in nitrogen at three to five leaf, we got three and a half to five percent nitrogen in the leaf is, is what we call sufficient. In six to nine it's 3.2, 10 to 14 it's three, 15, 18, 2.8, and that tassel 2.7. And I think Purdue is at 2.76 instead of 2.70, but but it's real close to that. And so those are the kind of interpretation stages. So we want to know the stage of growth when you send a sample in. And I think any laboratory would like to know that. What stage, what leaf stage is it? And, and how do you count the leaf stage? Collars. What happens when, you, when you're uh, at 14 leaf stage? How many leaves are gone from the bottom? A couple anyway. Probably. Yeah, a couple, probably. And, and sometimes when those, when those brush roots start coming out, they peel those, those leaves off, so sometimes it's six leaves. So you kind of have to understand where you are in counting those. You can't go out when the corn's this tall and say that's the number of leaves because you might have two dead or you might have four dead on the bottom of the plant. And it's, uh, you'd have to pull the plant up and dissect it to see where that growing point start was down there. So, so kind of keep track of those as, as the time is going on so you know how many are destroyed. If you're cultivating, then it... Sometimes you can see those little tiny leaves in the no-till, but if you cultivate and throw dirt around it, you can't, can't see that. So, so always, uh, always kind of count. How many leaves does corn have at tassel time? 20, right. So you can count backwards at, at that point, too. Phosphorus, 0 0.35, 0 0.28, 0 0.26, 0 0.26, 0 0.25 at tassel time. So those, the, you know, as we go along, we need to know that, so we make the interpretation. Potassium. Two and a half early, and then that drops down to two. You remember uh, the chart shows how the potassium, how much potassium is taken up by tassel time, and so you've got to watch that pretty critical. The real deficiencies 
uh, I've seen where you have the deficiency with that yellowing on each side of the leaf blade, you're down to about 0.5%. So there's a lot of hidden hunger on, on the potassium thing. And so, uh, so kind of, you may not see the deficiency symptom, but you need to look at the level to uh, go on. We'll hear more from Ray in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Did you know that many universities have found you can reduce the amount of phosphorus and potassium you apply by up to a third if you ban your fertilizer versus broadcasting it? Recent studies have also shown that banding phosphorus and potassium can increase yield. In fact, University of Illinois plant pathologist Fred Bilo found that banding phosphorus resulted in a corn yield increase of 14 bushels per acre. And banding fertilizer also helps prevent nutrient loss to the environment. To learn how you can start deep banding your fertilizer, visit Montag Manufacturing at www.montagmfg.com or give them a call at 712-852-4572. Before we return to the program, I want to let you know that if you'd like to learn more about micronutrients and how to make them pay off on your farm, we're offering a special discount to our podcast listeners on the special report everything you need to know about micronutrients. This 24-page report will explain why skimping on micronutrients isn't a good idea if you're looking to maximize yields, the seven important micronutrients that are critical to crop production, and how to apply and time micronutrient applications. To save 30% on this special report, visit notillfarmer.com micronutrients and enter the code micronutrients at checkout. Again, that's special code micronutrients at notillfarmer.com slash micronutrients to save 30%. Now let's hear more from Ray on the ideal nitrogen to sulfur ratio and how to identify more nutrient deficiencies. Okay, the sulfur, point two. Now the interesting thing about plant sulfur Dan Foraghi from up in South Dakota was up at his place and his corn didn't look very good. He sent a plant analysis to a laboratory and, and they said that everything was good. And so I looked at his results, I looked at the nitrogen, I looked at the sulfur. He had a nitrogen sulfur ratio over 20. And I said, you got a sulfur deficiency. So even though we got these kind of things, then there's a, a ratio that I'm starting to look at is a nitrogen sulfur ratio. Ideal, I think it's on the next one here, Ideal ratio of nitrogen to sulfur is 12 to 15 to 1. So 12 parts of nitrogen and one part sulfur. Now if you're in marginal, it would be 16 to 18. And if you're above 18 on that, you got a sulfur deficiency. And I've had these plants that are really yellow up to 35. And so it's pretty easy to detect it then. But if you got nitrogen up at 4%, and you got sulfur at 0.2%, both of those are adequate, but you got a sulfur deficiency because the ratio is 20 to one. So, you, so please look at that kind of thing when, when you're wondering about plants. Any questions on that? It's kind of one of those that with the sulfur deficiency you're getting, I think you need to pay, pay some attention to. Uh, then Bob Miller, he's an he's a ad, adjunct professor at Colorado State University. He does our, a lot of our proficiency programs for soil, plant, and water. He sends out to laboratories around kind of North America mainly. 
And uh, so he did this potassium experiment in the Corn Belt. And, and he did some analysis, and it's kind of interesting. This is some stuff that he picked up, I think, from uh, southern states somewhere. But he, he separated out his plots. He had 16 plots, separated them out by their, their uh, nitrogen to magnesium ratio. And when the ratio was less than 11, the average yield was 169. And if the, if the ratio was greater than 11, it's 205 bushel. Now, that could be just locations, too. It's hard to tell. But, but it's interesting that he was able to, to pick that out. And then he, he did this. So, so that you look at the percent nitrogen, 2.7, we'd say that's adequate at tasseling time. And 2.9, those are pretty close together. The potassium, 165 to 204. And, and the 2 is that break. And so it looks like the potassium is what's deficient. And it was a potassium experiment you're doing. Then he looked at the nitrogen-potassium ratio and the percent magnesium. Look at the, how high the magnesium is on those low yields. Does the magnesium have anything to do with it, or is the potassium deficiency? Did the magnesium cause the plants not to take up the potassium? These are some of those antagonizing type things we have in plants. If, and, and remember that in moving trans, uh, uh, photosynthate and those kind of things, the plant's making these organic compounds, and they have to move, you have to move them to different parts of the plant, and, and they're, they're anions, and they use the cations to move those things. So these are just some things that the ratios you might see, start seeing some ratios come out, and, and this is kind of new stuff, and I just wanted to put this out for you to see. So we'll, we'll just look at now some of the nutrients in this zinc deficiency. And the zinc, it'll be uh, this telescope's in, and then those, those bands, those white bands or yellow bands, are, go across the veins. That's a pretty good indicator that it's zinc deficient. If, the, if, they, if they just go up the leaves in the stay inside of the, in the intervenal material, then it may not be zinc. And, uh, and the leaf stage then for... For zinc, 20 part per million at 3 to 9 leaf, 8 to 10, 18, 19, and tassel 18. And so those are, I think those are pretty good levels. They're, some of the people think that should be a little higher. And the guy down in Kansas would like to see that at 28, but I'd, I don't want to spend that much zinc, money on zinc to get it up there to that level. So I think these are, these are good, good levels. Uh, there's another picture of a zinc at tasseling time. And I, some are, yeah, there's a, here's a brown silk right here on the ear. And uh, so you can see how those bands, then the, the veins kind of stayed green, but it killed all the material between the veins. And in one place there, it went across the veins to kill that material. If you see those kind of symptoms at, at that stage of growth, you knew you had zinc deficiency early. It does stick around to show that. Now, you can probably put a foliar on if you see the zinc deficient early. Go ahead and, and put a chelated foliar zinc on and follow the label on the zinc chelates to, uh, to follow that, to try to get it to green up some and grow. But, the, but when you got those problems, then it's important, I think, to get zinc in the soil and take care of the problem. Uh, this one's zinc deficient on soybeans. And of course, they're yellow. Uh, the veins remain pretty well green there, and it's intervenal material, kind of blotchy type things. But, Maybe not a real good picture. Uh, 
This amount of zinc we've recommended for corn based on salt test. I talked about that this morning. I've had guys have a zinc deficiency and try to treat it with starter zinc or with, with a foliar. And as one, one farmer up in South Dakota, three years, he's messing around. I finally told him to broadcast some zinc sulfate. And, and zinc sulfate is what you want, a 33 to 36% zinc. That's the soluble zinc. And that's the one you want to use. Now, if you've got a 20% and it's called something or another, make sure it's water soluble because some of that stuff is not soluble and, and it doesn't help you any. So make sure you've got, uh, got a good zinc compound to put on. And this is iron deficiency, and I like to just call that John Deere corn. It's all green and yellow. Intervenal material is yellow, green, the veins are green. Goes clear out to the tip of the leaf. Zinc striping won't go to the tip of the leaf. Iron does, and it's uh, caused, uh, here's, here's the iron on the soybeans. I call it iron chlorosis, because when we analyze those yellow leaves, they're higher in iron than green leaves. And so it's a, not a deficiency as such. Some people call it iron deficiency syndrome, and I just call it iron chlorosis. And this is caused by calcareous soil. And, and uh, calcareous soil is free lime in the soil. And, you get, and when it gets wet, then that lime starts to dissolve and produces bicarbonate. The bicarbonate flows into the plant in mass flow, precipitates iron in the plant, so the plant can't use it. So it turns yellow. And so the, the, the thing you have to worry about is the bicarbonate. Now, George Ream at, at Minnesota, with some of their things around some of those potholes at Calcareous, they found that if you planted oats, kind of the same time you planted soybeans, that the oats would maybe take up some of the water and keep, it, keep, it, keep the amount of bicarbonate down so the, the soybeans will stay green longer. Another thing you can do is uh, soy green, and then some other compounds are similar, but, but the soy green uh, chelate is an ortho-ortho. The first two words on the chelate is ortho-ortho. That's one that you can use a pound of product, one to three pounds of product with a seed, probably be the best way to go if you have such a, such a problem. And we got these problems in, in Nebraska and in South Dakota, but uh, we had dry years in the early 2000s and guys got soybeans going back on the Platte Valley and, and then it rained again. Just call them, well, we didn't have this problem before. They said, well, you got it now. And, and what do you do about it? They say, well, wait till it snows and then sell it. <laughs> Get rid of that land. <laughs> There's some, you know, the Platte River comes through there in a high water table and the salt's fluctuating up and down or the carbonates, and so we have problems. Now, the other one is apply sulfate to reduce the, the bicarbonate uptake. So if you have sulfate in a starter band, probably... Uh, Nine, uh, five to ten gallons of ammonium thiosulfate in the demand, that will give enough sulfate then to kind of compete with the bicarbonate going to the plant and the plants will stay greener. And this is manganese deficiency, uh, this on sugar beet, but it's a blotchy appearance. You remember on the set on the striping, it's not continuous striping, it's kind of blotchy and that would be manganese deficiency. Kind of like that shows. And then the levels, uh, 30 part per million up to 14 leaf and then 20 part per million uh, for up to tassel then after that is our interpretation. 
and a rate of uh, manganese we'd put on. Uh, most of the soil tests are going to be above one, but probably one to six pounds. Or, and I said this morning, 20 to 25 pounds of manganese sulfate. It's, I think, 28% manganese. So 10 pounds would be 2.8 pounds. So it's something to try. Not know if it'll work. Or you can, if you got the manganese deficiency, then, then use a manganese chelate and follow the label on the chelate for, the, for that manganese. In copper, don't have any pictures of copper deficiency. Uh, I think most of the time we have adequate copper in our plants. And then uh, the, the recommendation, what we talked about this morning. It's easy to, the copper is easy because it's like zinc. You can put zinc and copper on, you raise the salt test, it'll stay around for a long time. Manganese might be a every year type thing. Don't know for sure if we can get the manganese to stay around. And of course, iron. Iron is a, you have to treat all the time if you got the problem. So you need to, if you got iron problems, you need to select plants that have, are closest tolerant or plants that don't, aren't bothered by iron uh, deficiency or iron chlorosis. And then sometimes I think manganese is involved in that same thing with the iron. Boron, uh, and you can see the, the ears over here uh, not filled out and that's what, what if, you, if you really had a deficiency, this picture is from southeast Kansas where they have a few deficiencies. I have not seen anything like this in any other part of the, of the corn growing area in Nebraska, Kansas, uh, kind of thing, South Dakota. But if you don't have, if you don't have filling on any seeds, that might be a trigger that you got boron problems. And the boron would be five to 25 part per million. This is on corn. And uh, if you got beans, it needs to be 10 part per million and some of those things, but, and just be careful if you put on a, a foliar a boron. It says the foliar doesn't work, but you spray it on, it falls on the ground, and then the plants, plants take it up. And the recommendation, uh, just a, you know, five tenths of a pound is all you need to take, kind of take care of the boron. And if you put on, you know, one pound or th up to three pounds, if you're for alfalfa, don't put it on every year. That'll be enough for several years. And boron is, they say it's soluble, but it's not that soluble. It doesn't move real fast in the soil. And then chloride is the last one on wheat. It looks like a disease problem. And uh, this is potash on the, on the right side and no potash on the left side in this plot up in, <coughs> up in South Dakota. And then... Uh, these are the, sim uh, the deficiency symptoms. As, as a plant goes, as a as, as plant develops, the chloride goes up instead of down for the requirement, which is kind of interesting one. And, and most of them go down, but the chloride goes up with the development. And this is a picture of the, of the diseased leaf, so to speak, and the, chloride, and the one that had chloride on it. So if you have spotted, spotted things on the leaves, and, and uh, you haven't used any potash, then you might have chloride deficiency. And that would be in our western areas more than it is, would be here. And the last one is uh, molybdenum. And again, molybdenum interferes with nitrate reductase. The plant, take, you know, the plant takes in nitrate, then it has to reduce the nitrate to NH2 ions that can go into the plant to build proteins. And, and so 
molybdenum is needed to convert nitrate to NH2. And so if you've if you got nitrogen on and the plants aren't responding, you might have a, a molybdenum problem. Thank you to Ray Ward for discussing tissue testing, how to identify nutrient deficiencies, and how to correct those deficiencies. If you'd like to view any of the slides from Ray's presentation, go to notillfarmer.com and click on Podcasts under the Resources tab. There you'll find a link to this episode where his PowerPoint presentation will be available. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest No-Till Farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters, and be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Ray Ward, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Lara Barrera. Thanks for listening. <laughs>